like, you cannot be fun if you're not drinking anymore. And I'm the kind of person that kind of like digs my heels in. So there were challenges, but it was also like, hmm, I want to show you that I can still be fun without drinking. Welcome to the 1000 Days Sober Podcast. My name is Lee Davey. I'm not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I'm someone that doesn't drink alcohol. And I spend every waking moment of my life helping other people do the same like right now. This is not a joke. (laughs) Two mothers walk into a bar. One mother says to the other one, what would you like to drink? The other mother says nothing. Why do we stigmatize the mother who refuses to drink a powerful drug that kills 3.3 million people a year and we celebrate the mother who chooses to drink? Hasn't the world got this one a little bit backwards? Elise Knox is a mother. She chooses not to drink alcohol. She also coaches teens and families. So I got her on the podcast to discuss the stigma associated with being a mother who chooses not to drink, absolutely balmy, and how adults' choices to drink can impact their children in a very negative way. Elise loves helping teens and their families glide through the significant transitions in everyday life now and beyond. She loves working with teens to help them figure out who they really are and how they want to show up in the world. She's inspired every day by the gifts, talents and insights of the teens she works with. And Elise values communication and connection and loves supporting families to find a different way to show up, one which is less triggering and more connecting. She considers each family's unique structure and tailors her approach with fluidity as she understands that each family has their strengths and challenges. Elise is a nationally board certified health and wellness coach, an elementary master life coach, yoga teacher, former middle school teacher and mama, and she uses her skills from each of these aspects in her training and life experience to meet teens and families right where they are and help guide them back to a place of more ease and joy. We talk about that stigma, you know, like someone actually said to her, you know, that very thing. I could never hang out with a mum that doesn't drink. We talked about that. We talked about how drinking alcohol uh, as an adult when we're in the presence of our children really takes us away from that. We talked about how on earth elites managed to give up drinking whilst working in a bar. That's not easy, right? And a whole lot more. So without further ado, I'll shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of the wonderful, the beautiful Elise Knox. Just in case you didn't know, we are being recorded. Elise Knox, welcome. What part of the world are you coming to us from? Uh, I live in Northern California. Oh, I live in California, but I couldn't tell you if it's Northern or Southern. Do you know what? Like when it comes to like cartography and maps and stuff, like I'm just clueless. Yes, utterly clueless. I came from a family of like weather map people, and then I married one of them as well. So, oh wow! So you real? So okay. So I am in Tahunga, Sunland, which is like near Glendale. Okay, so you're in Southern California. I'm in Southern California. Okay. So what's the big difference between North California and Southern California then? Uh. Huge differences, I would say. I live between Sacramento and Lake Tahoe, Mm. so it's pretty rural where I live, Um, but I'm close. Like, it's 20, 30 minutes to Sacramento. Um, But, yeah, I think the vibe is just very different. There's a lot more space. I'm actually from, like, five hours north of here in California, and a lot of people don't know that California goes that far. Um, And that's, like, a whole world of difference to Southern California. Right, right. Now, I grew up in 
Wales in the UK. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, and so I, I could tell you all day what the drinking culture was like in South Wales and how I got into all that, but everybody listening to this knows that. Tell us, describe what was the part of the world that you tumbled into and how did alcohol start to be a part of your life? So I am from Humboldt County. And uh, Humboldt County is like the weed capital of this part of the world. Uh And um, it was just very, it was like, there was like a lawlessness sense where I grew up. I grew up out in the country in a community, in a small community. And my parents were um, rather strict compared to my friend's parents. And they really didn't want me to smoke. They really didn't want me to drink. I had some friends whose parents were like, whenever start, we'll do it with you. That wasn't my situation. However, the culture was party. Once I got into like seventh, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Party, and I was explain very party. attracted to that culture. Ah, why, why do you think he was attracted to it so much? Um, so my, I'm the youngest and I have an older brother and sister who were very much like studious rule followers. Hmm. And I was not. And I really like took the role of being different very seriously. And I, you know, doing like inner child work and really going into some of this, I feel that I, there was, there was stuff back there that I don't really, that I'm just kind of discovering of just feeling like misunderstood. Yeah. Yeah. And instead of trying to be more understood, I tried to be more misunderstood. A little bit like, okay, if you're not going to listen to me, then I'm just going to make you listen to me. Or if you're not going to listen to me, okay, I'll just go do what the hell I want. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, like, uh, yeah. What, what in terms of like personality patterns then, you know, cutlass personality patterns, where do you fall into in that? So interesting because I like <laughs> uh, rigid, much more so now that I'm not drinking um, yeah. and enduring. Right, right. Okay, so that in what you just talked about then fits in more to the enduring pattern, right? It's like mm-hmm. some people are like just get completely and utterly. I will do everything you say, mom and dad, because you know, yeah, I I, I want to be liked and loved, and then the other part is like, no, I'm just not going to do anything. You're not going to control me. I'm just going to go for it. Yeah. Which I imagine is massive when it comes to um, that whole world of risk taking, right? You know, drink, drugs, sex at an early age, peer group pressure, that type of thing. Um, so even though you had parents who didn't want you to drink and smoke, did, did your parents drink and smoke? Um, no, not really. Not when I was, right. Yeah. Right. Because that, that's interesting in itself. I was, I was actually talking to a client today and she was explaining the absolute confusion over her parents not wanting her to drink mm. and demonizing it while drinking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, my parents, they, um, 
like my mom a little bit when I was an adult, she would like drink with me some and drink mm-hmm. by herself or, you know, just like drink at a party or something. Some, but yeah. neither one of them were heavy drinkers at all, or even regular drinkers. Right. Right. Okay. So even though your pet, even though you grew up with parents who really weren't into it that much, the culture still grabbed you the culture of, Hey, if you want to fit in here and kind of do what we do, you got to drink alcohol. Did, did you really feel that you needed to do that to be a part of a tribe or is there something else going on? Yeah, I, it's very interesting. I'm like, I have spent a bit of time since quitting drinking being like, why? Cause my, my, um, tendency was to just go too far. Hmm pretty often. Mm. And, um, not like I didn't drink heavily every day. It wasn't that kind of drinking. It was like way more times than I can count. I got way, 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 way too drunk starting from like 12. Right. Really young then. Yeah. And my friends, I remember very clearly my friends really like, um, I was the only one who hadn't smoked weed in my friend group and it was like this huge thing and I wouldn't like they weren't like you have to do this to be cool but it was definitely like oh my gosh this is so exciting Elise is going to do this with us today Mm. yeah and then like the culture was as a very young preteen teenage girl we were like hanging out and partying with much older guys and just drinking and partying which are which is uh, the same in the uk yeah you often get like the younger girls hanging out with older boys because their maturity levels are kind of like matching up more than the kids at their own age um when did when did you realize it was a problem i don't know like three years ago when i quit mm. um no you know it's very interesting i i think i couldn't accept that it was like, I didn't want to accept that it was a problem for 20 years. Mm. Yeah. Um, I would have these like moments of being like, Oh gosh, that was terrible. Like I'm not going to drink for a month and do that. And then be like, okay, I'm just going to like ease back into it. And then a few months later, I mean, I also have two children, so I didn't drink at all for nine months while I was pregnant with them. Mm. Um, but now, so it's been, it'll be three years in October and I'm like, what, why didn't like, I have an amazingly supportive family and a loving husband. Like, why didn't anyone tell me that this is a problem? Like this was horrible, but I feel like that's our society. Mm none of them quit and so they're like you were fine because they don't want to quit <laughs> okay so let's just let's just focus on that because that's really important and we will, we will repeat ourselves but it is really important while you were feeling you you had a problem those around you didn't feel that you had a problem mm-hmm. which in itself is a problem <laughs> Because it's it's almost like um, it almost like slips into codependency, right? It's almost like oh yeah, it's, it's no, no no problem. So you're like really you could be like trying to quit, and your family could be like, well no, just moderate or everything is okay. Don't give yourself such a hard time. Just talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So even like now when I try to talk about it, 
with members of my family who still drink, they're like, you weren't that bad. Yeah. And nobody has like tried to get me to drink again. You know, I think, um, but there's definitely this, even with my husband who, you know, he hasn't quit drinking. Um, he's definitely cut back a lot, but he's like, you were fine. You were fun. And I was like, what about this time and this time and this time and this time? And that every time I got too drunk, we fought and mm. like, I was the worst. Right. Okay. <laughs> this is really important for people listening in to just, I just want to just accentuate what's going on here. Right. So if Elise's husband and her family acknowledge that Elise has a problem it opens that window of opportunity where they, their cognitive dissonance may sneak in and start asking themselves if they actually have a problem. And now, and now this is the whole problem of this, uh, what I call the invisible, violent, and dominant belief system of alcoholism, is that we're all designed from birth to drink alcohol. We're like, it's very difficult to escape it. And we'll talk about your work with, with the youth um, a little bit later on. It's really difficult to escape it. And the reason that it's so difficult it is so normalized. Like this is the only drug that we're actively encouraged to take. We're ostracized, ridiculed, or shamed if we don't. I mean, I don't know how you felt, but if someone is trying to tell you you don't have a problem when you clearly think you've got a problem, I'll ask you, how does that make you feel? Um, well, I think, you know, I've done so much inner work that I'm like very aware that they are saying that because they don't want to admit that they have a problem. Right, right. But not everybody's going to be that fortunate right? right and they could feel shame confusion yeah. um, i'm like wait what was i okay like blacking out so many times yeah. that, that must be okay yeah. yeah yeah and and you know for your listeners it's just important to understand that from a number of reasons like compassion is one hey actually they don't get it and that's cool and i need to understand they don't get it and also we likely behaved at that point at some point in time with somebody else because we didn't get it so understanding this whole thing like it's really critical especially when you stop and they don't stop and your life continues which is one of the reasons that I asked you to come on the podcast because when you when you stopped was you still working in a bar at that time yeah you know it's so funny I was I was a bartender for like 20 years off and on Hmm. in restaurants so not like the super bar scene but you know Yes. And I almost think it was helpful because I was able to see so many people uh, doing things that I was like, oh, like, I don't know why I wasn't really able to see them before because I wasn't like drinking every single night I was working. But um, it was like, oh, yeah, I don't want to ever be like that. Yeah. And it was like every time I was at work, I was being like shown a mirror basically of like, nope, I'm pretty much sure I don't want to do that anymore. (laughs) And you wasn't, you wasn't getting triggered to drink because the mirror was so horrific. You were seeing more pain and pleasure. Is that what was going on? Um, just kind of like, uh, embarrassment a little bit of like, oh, I've been that girl. Mm. Um, or that person, you know, even with men, it's the same. Um, I had a lot of friends at work tell me like, you cannot be fun if you're not drinking anymore. Straight up. Um, 
And I'm the kind of person that kind of like digs my heels in. So there were challenges, but it was also like, hmm, I want to show you that I can still be fun without drinking. I also had a lot of practice being around people that were drinking and not drinking from being a bartender. So I, I could do that. Um, up to a certain point, like at some point, I don't want to be around people that are drinking anymore. Yeah. Also when I quit, I wasn't planning on quitting forever. Right. So that would have helped, I guess, deal with the transition. It did. And I just felt so much better. And one of the big things with drinking for me was shame afterwards. And that was so like, intense forever and it finally like became clear that i i had control over not feeling that way anymore if i wanted to yeah i love that which is really important for people listening to this who drink to avoid shame mm, yeah and because then you feel yeah it it's like pushing the problem just a little bit further down the road and then realizing at the end of your life that oh actually i never I could have just, I could have, as painful and scary as it was, if I could have just dealt with that, um, I could have had a more, I could have had more freedom in my life and not been shackled to this thing, you know? Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. I, um, I just want to, um, for people listening, you said something really important, which was, um, as you can tell, Elise, this is like part interview, part teaching people listening, right? Um, you said, um, I don't know what happened. Like one minute, like I'm in, I'm at a, I'm in the barn, I'm working and I don't really notice anything. And then I stop drinking and all of a sudden I notice all these dickheads basically. And I'm thinking, fuck, right. Like the, the reticular activating system. So the first time I heard anyone talk about the reticular activating system, the RAS, it was Jack Canfield mm-hmm. and he was talking about the law of attraction. So he was saying, if we want, if we want to, um, if we want to like get the ideal woman in, in your life or the ideal job or the ideal car and you visualize and you, you know, you do that work and you tell your subconscious what it is that you want, then all of a sudden your reticular activating system kicks in and it provides you with evidence that that is available to you because really, if you think about life, if we was to actually, if our brain was to allow everything in, we would just go insane. So it, it has to look at things and go, oh, that's not important to me. Or I know that that fits into a certain rule. So what our RAS does as drinkers is we look at people getting drunk and our RAS says, oh, we don't have to pay attention to that because that's normal. Mm-hmm. But then when you redefine normality, you're telling your RAS through your changing your, your, you know, your neuroplasticity, it is not normal to drink. It is, um, it can be toxic, X, Y, Z can happen. And then boom, it just tells you there they are. And you see it all the time. Yeah. Um, does, do you want to comment on that at all? Totally. 100%. Like, and I think what, what comes to mind is like that, that thing that I told you, um, saying like, oh, I could never hang out with a mom who didn't drink. Yeah. And then immediately not switching that narrative but noticing how, like noticing the culture of moms 
in like mama needs what whatever the shirts are that people have that are like I have to drink to be a mom to take care of my kids. Yeah, yeah. Those things started just like popping up everywhere and less judgmental of like actual humans. But I just started to see the culture as like, so not okay. <laughs> yeah. Nah, yeah. That is like super important. It's like, and it hits you too. It hits you too far because the alcohol industry spent billions of dollars a year for a particular reason it works otherwise you wouldn't spend the money females are like a big um avatar you know for that kind of stuff but then you you've also got what we talked about which is the subconscious drive from the culture mm -hmm. to make it almost um we have this exercise in the strive method on absurdity so for me memes that ridicule a drug and make it into a joke is part of the way of allowing you to take it. Mm -hmm. So if we, at the moment, like we wouldn't, we no, heroin is not like wide scale as like alcohol because our narrative and the way that the culture presents it to us is, is very different to alcohol. So, mm -hmm. and it's done that way for a purpose because the world doesn't want people being junkies but the world does want us to be addicted to alcohol because so many people are that don't even know it and they've lost the ability to function without it so they have to believe the absurdity which is why these memes and these t-shirts and it's almost like okay i don't want to feel the shame of being a mother who's not present for my kids wow i don't have to be because they're celebrating that it's cool mm -hmm. It's heartbreaking, really. And imagine the the narrative that the kid grows up with that my mom needs to drink to be my mom. And then I must need to drink to like it it's it's fine, obviously. Mm. Yeah, it's very, very interesting and just that piece of that you mentioned of like it's it's set up for us to do this comfortably because of the narratives that we're being fed. It's like, here is a hand, there's a glove bump. And it, I say like people drink alcohol because of five ends of justification. It's natural, it's necessary, it's nice, it's normal and it's noble, right? Like some people have all five, some people have a few of them. If you're, if you're drinking alcohol to any great degree, you have one of them, you won't be drinking otherwise because you just realize that I'm, I'm just drinking a poison and I wouldn't, I wouldn't put rat poison in my porridge, but I'm doing it with alcohol, right? So those five ends are really, really important. And if you think about what Elise is talking about, about mummy culture, flip that around and think the other end and think, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to go through that, tri that, that ritualization of boy to man? And the the boy in any cult in any culture that had ritualization, we don't have it anymore. But when they used to have it in you know, the old Amazonian tribes, there's 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 a culture of ritualization where the old elders, the men, they will um, bring their boy from boyhood through ritualization, which usually involves a bit of pain and suffering, and death of the boy into manhood. Mm -hmm. We don't have that, but we have this pseudo relationship, the pseudo ritual of. My dad was like, never showed me any love, any care, any attention, anything like that. But when I turned 18, he was like, you're coming to pub with me. 
Mm. It was the only way he knew how to connect with me and how to teach me to be a man was to drink alcohol. Mm. And every boy craves to be like their dad or to, be, to crave that, that masculine energy. So it's, 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 it's just coming at us from all sides, right? And like that piece of like the only way that men bond, not the only way, but one of the most common ways and women too, but I feel like we, we can like go have coffee and chat much more acceptably, but the, in the Western culture, the way that men bond is over beer or whiskey or whatever it is. It was, it's always alcohol hmm. or sport or competition with alcohol so (laughs) so if you play poker you drink while you play poker if you go to watch the match you go to the pub before the match if you Mm -hmm. play in a local football team you play football and then you go to the pub afterwards there's no no masculine events where i grew up that was just strictly around not drinking alcohol i mean i'll tell you this when i first said to my friends when i stopped drinking um do you want to go to movies with me my friends said to me are you gay Mm. And that, that was the culture that I grew up in. Yeah. And um, myself, I can only say from my own personal experience, the thought of being labeled as gay, as being homosexual when I was a child, was terrifying. Because all you saw was people being called that and labeled that. So anybody who was weak or anybody who was perceived to be weak or was bullied, it was always around sexuality. Even if they were heterosexual, the way that the boys would ridicule the boys would we call them gay or a homo or something like that. Mm. And you just went through life fearing that. So you overcompensated by trying to be the complete opposite and be over masculine. So you'd take greater risks, you'd sleep, you'd have infidelity, you'd fight, you'd steal, you would mess about and not do your homework. Like, yeah, it, it's... Um, yeah, we're getting into it now, Elise. Yeah, but I mean, that's so, like, that's just the perfect, like, story of, I mean, it, it's very similar, not quite as, like, severe, but as my friend that I worked with, that I was, that she was just like, you can't be fun if you're not drinking. I don't want to yeah. hang out with you, you can't be fun. It's like, yeah. it's such a clear black and white line, and I think, like I said, because I was, I was already in the coaching space yoga space like I was meditating regularly like I was in that the space I was able to see very quickly that 99% of the time that people couldn't accept my choice was because of their insecurity in their own drinking which they probably weren't even aware of. of. No, absolutely not. And so I did not tell them. (laughs) (laughs) I did. (laughs) Uh, You you seem to have stopped at a really good time in in your life where you was kind of like, how can I say this? Uh, When I stopped, I was still a boy. Mm -hmm. So my my leaky... um, unhealthy masculine energy was to shame people mm-hmm. when I stopped. So I would get into an intellectual debate with them. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was just completely shaming them. And I was pushing people further away from myself. It sounds like you was a little bit more with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is like so many things were happening at that time. And one of the main 
uh, motivators, once I had like had stopped for a little while to keep going was I was coaching and I was like, I don't want to coach somebody hungover because that is, and I like, I was, I have had, I have had health problems and my hangovers were severe, even if I didn't drink a ton. And so like knowing that I wanted to show up a hundred percent for my clients and be really present with them and knowing that like, I couldn't do that from a place of a hangover. Mm -hmm. And I had just started like a morning meditation routine that I was sticking to for the first time in my life. Like there were these kind of building blocks that were, had just been set in place. And in my, I didn't make that connection at the time at all, but looking back, I'm like, Oh yeah. Like there were, it was, I was ripe. She was ripe for (laughs) For being successful. Mm. Cause I've quit many times for 30 days and jumped right back on. Yeah. And in this time you just decided I was not going to drink for a little while and it turned into three years. Yeah. So where do you sit on it now? Are you one of those who are like, well, if I take every day as it comes and I'll do what I feel like, or are you one of those that's like, I'm never going to ever touch that shit again? It's very funny. I like, I kind of oscillate back and forth. Um, When I like, actually think about drinking like there's times where I'm like oh yeah maybe like when I'm old old and retired and my husband and I are driving around in a camper van like (laughs) and then I'm like why would I ever fucking do that again yeah yeah um because I know that it would never be just a few glasses of wine for myself well let's 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 Poke and prod that one then, because like this is a super controversial topic, actually, um, and one that confuses a lot of people. And the the core of my audience who have been like we've done over three hundred shows, so like people who've been with me for like six or seven years, you know, they know like I'm I'm a hardcore staunch kind of like let's just stop drinking forever, right? Like, uh, and the reason that I am that is because I think you know when we talk about this belief system that that hoodwinks everybody into it from such an early age moderation is part of that problem so when we look around and see everybody quote-unquote moderating it normalizes it and it makes it and then we get into it we start ourselves normalizing and we realize it's really difficult um uh, to stop drinking so you know i don't like moderation from that respect but i'm always but but everybody who comes to me for me to help them quit alcohol i would say the vast majority of them they don't really want to quit what they want is that holy grail of being able to drink socially without getting an hangover and not drinking medicinally, right? So I always get asked, like, Lee, would you moderate? Well, here's the thing. Right now, um, that's impossible, right? Because, A, I don't believe alcohol provides me with any value. I don't see how that would change. And, B, I run 1,000 days sober. So the accountability um, coupled with my just, my just my belief, my hardwired and my paradigm, alcohol provides me no value. Um, the same way that heroin provides me with no value, right? Or, or any other drug right now, really, right? Because I can get everything it gives me through normal means without having the nasty side effects. I just wouldn't, I wouldn't do it, right? But if I did try it, like if I was to say to somebody, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna prove to you that I can, uh, I can drink moderately, right? And and let, and, I, and I, after three years of, three years of not drinking, when my wife divorced me, I did drink for a bit when I met Liza, mm-hmm. right? So here's what I think. I think people can drink moderately 
but I couldn't, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> I'm 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 nowhere near the finished article yet. Mm-hmm. I have compensatory strategies right now, such as anger, such as uh, yeah, let's just say anger. Right, like anger is a compensatory strategy for me, which I'm working on. Right. If I was to start drinking again today, knowing all the knowledge I know about alcohol and just said, I'm just going to drink moderately, I would very quickly turn to alcohol when my wounds are scratched rather than or with anger. Now, in the future, if I could eventually become more conscious and less in drama and I had a bigger emotional body and I was kind of like, I didn't have those wounds activating... Maybe I could do that. But then you've got to ask yourself, what is the likelihood that you're going to actually be like Buddha? And you know, what is the likelihood? And for me, I'm pretty kind of landed on that I'm going to be perfectly fucked up for the rest of my life. So that means that alcohol for me is always a bit of an issue because my go-to hardwired for 35 years was to go to alcohol as a compensatory strategy. You've got the floor. Yo, folks, I'm just going to interrupt this conversation with Elise just for a little moment to say to you that if you want to take your life to the next level, if you want to get out of your addictive cycle, if you want to transform your life, if you want to find freedom, if you want to figure out your relationship conundrums and your your quizzical Uh, thoughts and feelings around meaning and purpose. If you have a teenager in your house that really needs some help and support, or you just want to work together as a family to get to the root of these things, then myself and Elise Knox are here to serve. Email me at 1kdaysober at gmail.com and I'll put you in touch with Elise or I'll set you up with a coaching call with myself to discuss how we can both serve. Without further ado, I'm going to get you back into the conversation with Lee Davey and Elise Knox. Yeah. So, I mean, I resonate with that so much. My, my go-to is not anger. I am like, my go-to is I feel, and I didn't realize I wasn't able to articulate this until recently. I mean, it's funny because like time passes quickly and I'm like, Oh yeah, I haven't drank for three years. It's like, woo. there were stages along the way, but I was talking to my husband the other day and I was, cause I watch him drink two beers every night, you know, and I'm like, huh, interesting. And, um, I kind of feel like alcohol about alcohol, like people talk about heroin. I've never done heroin, Mm. but I almost every time that I drink had the like chasing the dragon feeling if I can imagine what that was. Yeah. So like, I clearly remember being like, even though nobody was watching me, like being sneaky about like pouring more tequila in my margarita, um, as a bartender, like I would, you know, margaritas were my favorite. I would fresh squeeze things. Like I miss the art of creating alcoholic beverages. I liked the taste and it was full of shame. Yeah. And so like, I know that the moment I start drinking a little bit, I just want more. Like Mm. I want more of that. And I feel like with alcohol, There is no, just like with any drug, like there's no just being in this like perfect buzz forever. 
And I would always like chase it and then go too far or just not feel unsatisfied. If, you know, it was like constantly grabbing for something that I couldn't hold on to. Mm. Very rarely do I like clearly remember having just like epically fun times with alcohol that I also remember that I also wasn't like, Ooh, how can I get more of this? That's so, so important. Like me and you do a lot of coaching work. I'm sure you're the same as me. We, we take people into their body and we, we ask them to relive member memories of sadness, but also memories of pure joy. I don't think I've ever, ever had a client describe to me a memory of pure joy while drunk. Now, let me just put some context around that. One of my really beautiful memories is, is being married, like the first time I got married, that big, huge wedding with all my friends and stuff. The bits that provide me with the joy are the bits that I can remember. But I'm also, it's also tinged with sadness and regret that I didn't remember more. And I actually ended up in an argument that night with my wife because we were both smashed. Mm-hmm. It, you cannot say that this was my most joyous memory because your memory is spoiled or tarnished and there's no way that it can be accentuated by the alcohol. It's normally things like the birth of my child, um, the moment that I went to this rock concert and, I, and, you, know, and you were sober and you remember it. Like it it's, it's very rare that it is alcohol, yet we consistently tell ourselves that without it, we can't have joyous, wonderful, beautiful moments. I mean, that right there was my first two years without alcohol. It was like, I don't know how to have fun. I don't yes. know what to do. Like every single, and still I struggle with it to some degree. How do I celebrate things? How do I move from like work to relaxing time with my family how do I go on a date with my husband how do like every single thing that was like fun or celebratory or joyous in my life was connected to alcohol like camping drinking all day river drinking um going out with a friend drinking like yoga I love yoga so I would go to yoga with my friends and that was great. And we didn't drink, but I was like, what the fuck? From my earliest memories, I don't know how to have fun without alcohol. Well, even yoga, Lululemon brought out a beer, a beer. What? (laughs) Yeah. Lululemon brought out a beer line. So like, I mean, even, even when I was in Cardiff, I would go to the local health store and we love this health store. It's called Bean Freaks. It was a massive alcohol section, but the way that they promoted it as healthy was by saying it was organic. So it, it, it is everywhere. And look, I just want to say as well, you know, like I'm with you on this. I, I recently had to face reality and say, I have avoided enjoyment and going out because I really didn't know how to. Because everything that I did that revolved around um, fun and enjoyment, perceived fun and enjoyment was alcohol, right? But that doesn't mean we can't. It just means that we, we're blocked, we're challenged, 
and we have to think of doing something different. Um, when you're when you're let's say you go camping and there and you know you're going with a, with different families and you know they're going to be drinking, how do you feel? Uh, so I went last year was the first year I went camping without drinking, just me and my husband and my two daughters. And I was, I have to say, it was like, shit, this is mm-hmm. like, I'm not really like, you know, the, the buildup was good. But like when we pulled in and my husband cracked a beer, I was like, huh, this is going to be tough. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I was like, oh my gosh, I feel great when I wake up. I like had a wonderful conversation with my husband around the campfire after the girls went to bed. I remember like seeing the stars, just like enjoying being in nature. Um, and then this year we went with my brother and sister and my brother and his wife are not heavy drinkers. And my sister who is more is pregnant. So there was that, but I feel like at this point, I'm kind of just like, I feel so good when I wake up. Like I can go for a run. I can go like meditate down by the lake. Like I get, like I get to feel good Mm. when nobody else does. Yeah. Thank you for that. Do you know what goes on for me? What? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use my two different families because they're both polar opposites. The thought of me going camping with my family, my, my family, would fill me with dread. Mm-hmm. And the reason that it would is because I know that at some point in the, in the night, and it would happen very quickly, everybody would get drunk and and they, I, and they would not be available to me. And two things would happen that would create anxiety. One, I would be waiting for that moment to happen. I would know that once it happened, one, if not two of my family would almost certainly start crying at some point and would start to, because of so much repressed and suppressed emotion and that inhibition dropper of alcohol would just allow someone to kick off. And that that this is that disassociation, that selfishness, that I'm not going to be able to communicate with you, I'm not going to be able to connect with you, means well, I don't want to be around you now. So it becomes less about the alcohol and more about connection. Like why would why would we want to hang out? Think about this. Why would we want to hang out with anybody if we didn't feel connected to them? Because it's not about alcohol, right? We would let's say we are, we have kids. And we meet someone as a mom and a dad. I might say, oh, I really get on with this guy. And my wife might say, do you know, I don't get on with him at all. Like there's no, there's no connection there. It's not alcohol. She's not going to call him up and ask to go out with him again. So why would you be stuck in a campsite for a week on, on that, right? Now, with my other side of the family, they say we was going to camp. Like tomorrow we'll go. Melissa said, we do you want to go to Irving tomorrow to see the family, right? This is what happens in my head. Oh, yeah, I'll be able to talk to Daniel. Because when I go to their house, they don't drink. Mm. Their focus is on children and connection and family. So I can sit down with Daniel and Daniel will be interested in me. How's your business? How's your coaching? How's your life? He's interested in me. Mm. When I'm with my family, it's like, what's the weather like in Los Angeles? 
What's the weather like in Los Angeles? What's the weather like in Los Angeles? And I'm not blaming my family, but that's how it is. Mm -hmm. So they have to get drunk in order for them to get beyond that point. And then that means I'm not in the game. Mm -hmm. So I get a severe anxiety when I'm around people or situations where I know they're not they're drinking when I'm alone. So I'm a kind of like, all right, lads, I'll be there at seven and I'm fucking gone at half eight because you're all a bunch of boring wankers, right? And they and they know it. There's no argument. Like they're 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 like, yeah, we we get it, Lee. Yeah. You know, it's funny. One thing that I noticed, I mean, I also have like a nine o'clock cutoff, but when you were talking about that, something that comes up is that I um, you know, I also said I'm kind of in the rigid pattern. And so being sober, having young children at social events, I find myself just constantly kind of like being on guard and being concerned for the safety of the children who are not being uh, looked after. And it, it really, that like can vary. Or I also have a big aversion to like violence and conflict and so if I and I'm very like I, I pick up on people's energy and when people are drinking like you know anything's possible in that arena too and so mm. in large I mean COVID has not been too bad for me because large gatherings are not not very enjoyable anymore and I used to I used to think I really loved them yes <laughs> and now I'm like oh wait am I like an introvert like is it is it not drinking anymore like i've really had to be like wait who who am i without alcohol i i have a theory mm. i'm gonna i'm gonna give you my theory and i've run this theory by my stride community and it seems to hold weight right so me and you have done a lot of work around the autonomic nervous system right and we in our group, right? So me and Elisa are in a, in a group called the Elementum Coaching Institute. And we were doing a lot of work around the autonomic nervous system. Um, and in very, very short, like if we if we follow like Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory, normally we're in social engagement system. We're really happy. Well, me and Elise right now, we're in social engagement system. We're looking at each other's facial muscles. We're picking up on cues. We're listening to our tonality, the humor, the storytelling, and we're feeling connected. Do you feel connected to me? Absolutely. Yeah, and I feel connected to you. And that's our social engagement system. But if we were to trigger each other by something, by some way, maybe I we now start having a difference of opinion on whether we should moderate or something, we start to feel a little bit disconnected, a little bit triggered. And if that continues, then we can slip into our sympathetic nervous system, right? We start to feel a fight or flight. And as coaches, we're always taught that the most important thing is safety, because if we can't provide a safe space, then the possibility of dragging them from dragging them, <laughs> from guiding them from this sympathetic nervous system is fight or flight into social engagement is going to be really rocky. So here's my theory with that context. I don't like going to the pub or being around people who drink alcohol because it's not safe. It's not safe for me. Why? Physically, as a man, it is unsafe because when I grew up, my history and my experience was there's a lot of violence, a lot of fighting in pubs and clubs when I grew up, right? But the other piece that I didn't catch until later when I stopped drinking, it is unsafe for me psychologically because I know 
I am not going to be seen, witnessed, and heard. I cannot be vulnerable in front of a lot of people drunk. I cannot talk about my shame in front of a lot of people who are drunk because they are likely to ridicule, embarrass, and shame me because they're drunk. So I don't feel safe to be with people who they're drinking. So that means when I go out or before I'm thinking about going out, I'm in fight or flight. And my autonomic nervous system is kicking in and saying, Lee, you cannot go there. You need to go somewhere and do something else. So that I do that. And then I start thinking, am I an introvert? Am I an extrovert? People are saying, are you boring? And really the truth is, no, I don't feel safe. Yeah. I was actually just having a conversation with my mom's best friend about this, like, and without like spelling it out the way you just did, uh, she's like, but you're an extrovert. And I was like, honestly, I really only want to be around like people that I know are interested in me and like, I am interested in them and we can have conversations like I'm having with you right now. And I would rather just not do the other thing. And what I found is that I feel exhausted if I try to do it. Mm -hmm. And like, I just get home and I'm like, Oh my gosh, like I can't believe like what just happened to me. I was just talking to people, but I think that like that piece of safety is and I think knowing the like knowing the other side, knowing what's possible in conversations and when you are seen and heard, you're like, oh wait, there's 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 another there's something else. There's a massive difference between a controlled, connected emotional release and just absolutely blabbering your guts out when you're smashed. Mm. It's like completely different, you know. Um, Ah, yeah. Hey, tell everybody about the work you're doing with youngsters. Kind of spell out the age group that you're working with, what you do. And then I, I got some questions to ask you around that and alcohol, actually. Yeah, so um, I work, I, I do coaching with teenagers. And um, it was not what I was planning on doing with coaching. Um, I used to be a middle school teacher. And then I stopped when I had kids and just wanted to be a mom for a while. Um, and then found coaching and then somehow just like ended up at the, with this contracting position at a school and got to work with probably like 30 or 40 different, um, students from seventh grade to high school, like senior. And it was, it was so cool to just, I think (sighs) teenagers get such a bad rap and, you know, obviously the teenagers that are saying yes to working with a coach are teenagers that are aware they have a problem and wanting to do something about it. Mm. Um, but I just felt inspired by, by most of them really. And their, Mm. their deeper level thinking and, um, just openness to, to a different way of being. Um, so that was really, really cool. And, and then now I'm, I'm not going back to that school setting. Um, but I've found like teens are still his coming to me Mm -hmm. and also really passionate about working with the families because what I noticed in coaching teens through the school where I wasn't really working with their families is that I could coach and they would make breakthroughs and it would be amazing. But if they were going back to the same toxic relationship, whether like 
there was abuse and horrible things or just like them and their parents had a really bad way of communicating with each other. Hmm. Um, it was really hard for them to make change because I mean, as you know, coaching people and adults, especially with alcohol, your environment <laughs> where you are is a huge Massive. part of it. Massive. Yeah. And yeah. teens have less ability to change their environment than adults do. Yeah, definitely. Um, Okay, I've got some questions to ask you on that. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say before I do, there'll be a lot of parents now listening to this who might start to feel shame. And there's a couple of things I want to talk to on that respect. One, I don't see you as victims. I don't I don't want to see you as victims. I don't want to slip into that drama triangle. Anybody listening to this podcast, you know, you may feel shame and you can handle that shame. You can handle that experience. And I'm gonna talk about it anyway. But I'm also going to say it will be unusual for a parent not to have felt shame around parenting at some point in their life. So you won't be alone. Right. Mm -hmm. But you did allude to it earlier on. Like when your rigid pattern, I have a rigid pattern as well. It's like um, when you're at a party, um, you're looking out for the safety of the kids. Right. I just want to focus on that a little bit. And you've, you've worked with, with, with children as well. What is it that, that, that parents really need to be aware of? when they're drinking, um, what is it doing in terms of their relationship with their children? I know that's very broad brushing, you know, but what are some of the things that will come up and that could be damaging um, uh, to a child because of this, almost like putting alcohol ahead of the child in many, many respects. Uh, do you want to talk into that? Yeah. And I'm, I mean, I will speak from my own experience. Uh, because I quit drinking three years ago and I have a five and an eight year old, um, mm. you know, lack of presence. Um, when you're drinking, it's very easy to go into like, um, like a small thing can become a big thing quicker than if you're not drinking. So your reaction, your reaction, like, it, I feel like that can kind of go both ways. Like, if there was an actual emergency, your reactivity may be too slow. You may not actually have, like, the physical means to deal with it. That's, like, yeah. an extreme example. And a less extreme example is, like, when you're, I mean, especially with a teen, if your teen comes to you and is trying to have a conversation with you, maybe says something triggering, you can go, like, into anger and shame and all of that just so much quicker. Yeah. So it's really, I mean, the thing that is most clear to me when working with families and teens and the, like the learning and the research that I've done is we all come from like a place of, of seeing through our own, through our lens and our stories that, ex that we experienced. And so we talk to our children as if like, they're going to have our experience <laughs> rather than they're going to have their own experience. And so when you're sober, that's like very hard to do to be like, Oh wait, no, like just because I was bullied in seventh grade for having curly hair, doesn't mean my daughter who has extremely curly hair is going to get bullied in seventh grade. I don't need to start protecting her right now. Mm -hmm. um, that's like something that I'm like, Oh wait, <laughs> like yeah, come back you can think back. about it when i'm sober if i were drinking and she came home and said like so and so said i had a fro 
which is what people used to like make fun of me for, I would, I would fly off. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I really like that. I, um, <laughs> my, my son, especially, you know, like I, I'm really guilty of like, this is my life and your life is going to be exactly the same. So I need to prevent you from hitting the same hurdles, yeah. which is like so ludicrous when you wake up because his life and his, is and the age that he lives in is so completely different. Um, a couple of things that like with my, my uh, compensative strategy of anger, my, my inner child wounds, which then lead to me being triggered and my inner child coming out very quickly. Holy shit. If I'm right, right now, with all the work I've been doing in the last 18 months, I've never been so far ahead of the eight ball before in my life, right? Like I can feel myself starting. Like if you think of an, an emotion like anger, for example, I can feel disappointment. I can feel a small, smaller, less intense version of anger way before it gets to anger. And I can check in with myself and say, Lee, you need to regulate because you're likely to um, not have a strong boundary and you're going to hurt somebody, right? Mm -hmm. I can do that sober, mm -hmm. but even if I'm that conscious and then I get drunk, the likelihood of my inner child coming out is just so, it's like thousand X. Mm -hmm. If you're getting, if you're drinking every day, wow. Right. So there's, there's that, this presence thing that you said as well, is like super important. I was reading something the other day, a book called um, Your Child's Self-Esteem by Dorothy Briggs. And she was talking about presence. Now, imagine I'm with my daughter and like right now, me and Zia are writing a book. Okay. Mm -hmm. So she's orated it to me and I'm typing it and then she, and I'm getting her to do illustrations. Right. And she's four, right. It's like amazing. Right. Imagine if I'm next to her and I'm on my mobile phone like this mm -hmm. and she's talking to me about the book. I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah. Now I've seen that picture a million times. I've been that guy. But it wasn't until I read the book that I realized what she was saying. You're not there present for your child and your child is smarter than you in many respects. And they will know that you're not present with them. And that is going to accentuate their shame. It's going to make them feel rejected. It's going to make them feel um, unloved, not, not important enough. And they're going to then adopt similar behaviors, right? Well, trinket alcohol, I cannot think of a more selfish, self-centered, detaching experience. I, I have memories of being, we used to have a lot of parties at my house when I was in my previous relationship. I have memories of Jude and all the other kids of my, my friends just on their Nintendos, like four or five years on their Nintendos mm -hmm. from seven o'clock at night to like one o'clock in the morning, just seven kids on their Nintendos while we were in the kitchen getting smashed because we couldn't give a fuck. Um, and then the other one is communication. Like how can you teach your kids? How can you talk and communicate effectively and help them regulate? If you're drinking five, six, seven beers a night or a bottle of wine a night, you cannot do it. You can't show up for them. Like, so I'm sorry if you're feeling a lot of shame right now, folks, but turn that into something useful and say to yourself, well, okay, how can I do something different here? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And like so many thoughts on that. I think presence with our children is, you know, it can be challenging. Of course, we're being bombarded by our phones and whatever all the time. And 
absolutely they know whether they know or not, whether, whether you can tell they know or not right now, Mm. all of those are signals that they're absorbing. And like you said, it's not to shame anyone, but it's to like plant a seed of, of awareness around whether it's your phone or your alcohol or your whatever it is, like they're sponges and they're picking it up and they're, what they're getting from that is I'm not worthy subconsciously mm-hmm. which is going to leak out when they're older in a relationship maybe mm-hmm. you know like my son Jude you know and I'll 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 end with this and your thoughts on this one of the most tragic things of uh, my relationship with Jude is when I I've spoken to him about because I I stopped really parenting Jude um like full-time when he was 10 because we got divorced and then he lived with his mum. When I talked to Jude and I've apologized to him about my behavior as a father in those 10 years because Mm -hmm. of my drinking, he has nothing but quote unquote good memories of the way we interacted because he didn't see that it was a problem. He had his dad, his dad was there and he felt that I did a, a good job, right? That's his feedback to me. That breaks my heart that that was his normality because now I have a four-year-old and I'm more with it and I don't drink. I can see the depths and the power and the connection and the capabilities as a father. And I was never able to fully show that to Jude when he was younger, but his subconscious, he consciously, he thinks it was okay. Subconsciously, I am definitely not so sure. And that the whole thing makes me really sad, you know? Yeah. Yeah, my actually I have a 23-year-old stepson, so my husband had a son very young and I think he has, you know, different different feelings about and different reasons, but the second time around, I think it's like such a gift for nice. you and for him because he was able to see what he wanted to do differently mm. and how and, and pre- I feel like that, just that piece of like presence, like you're writing a book with your daughter, like the way that my husband can relate to our kids now and talk about like other parents who not in a negative way, but who are like, ah, these kids, he's like, no, like they're literally going to be 23 before you know it. Cause he's had yeah. that experience, you know? And like, this is this time or not 23, like 12 and they're not going to want to hang out with you anymore. Yeah. Um, and so he's like had this second gift of being a father again. Mm. And, and like also like we were all put here on this planet in this way with these other people, this is my belief system to learn something, you know, and what Jude got from you and what my husband's son got from him. And, and then what your now kids are getting from you, like, it's, it's not perfect, but it is what it is. And, and they're like, each one of them got gifts, like the strengths that Jude may have, because he had to endure certain things, maybe a gift to him later in his life or already yeah. have them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely believe that. I'm, I'm always like, 
I'm always like my my view on life today is like why why is Elise here right now? Like mm-hmm. why is Elise here? What what is she here to teach me? This morning when Zia was screaming in my face, right? She was screaming this morning because she wanted to get in bed with her mom. And I said to her after a while, I went downstairs, I left her mom deal with it, and then codependently came into the living room <laughs> and codependently said, You need to go and rescue your wife because it's not fair that she's suffering her daughter scream at her when she's fine. So codependently comes upstairs and he's like, Zia, I'm going to remove you from this room in five seconds. If we cannot calm down, she's like, not going to calm down. I pick her up. I take her downstairs. She's obviously scratching, screaming. Right. And she gets right in my face. This little four year old. <laughs> she jabs her finger in my chest and she says, you need to apologize to me now. That is my boundary. Why are you being my enemy? Right? And I just fucking melted, right? I melted. And in those moments, you're like, wow, she is here to teach teach me how to manage my autonomic nervous system. She's teaching me because right now she's like saying, dad, how fucking dare you tell me to regulate? When you go downstairs and you can't regulate to the degree, you come up and pick me up. You're telling me to calm down. And it's like, it's so obvious to me now. It's like, ah, so there's a work, right? I can't see that work if I'm fucking drinking every night and I'm just saying, shut that kid up. Uh Or just, do you know what I used to do? And it still tries to come out of me now, but because I don't drink, I can catch it. It's threats. If you don't stop crying, I'm not going to do this with you. If you don't stop crying, I will take this away from you. That is how I used to deal with Jude because that is how I was dealt with, Mm -hmm. right? And the drinking and everything kept me in the matrix, if you like, in this groundhog day of no internal growth. Stopping drinking for me activates internal growth. It allows me to grow and develop to heal my wounds and then when you've got your girl there in front of you, it's just be like, wow, I just made a big mistake, but I know I made a mistake. That's the fucking key, right? And you can apologize. Which I did. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, I think that like just one little nugget, final nugget of like parenting is that's so different than the parenting of our, you know, our parents Mm. Um, apologize. Like, these little humans, they think that we are like God or whoever, whatever you believe in. Like sometimes my kids will say stuff to me and I'm like, oh, like you literally think I know everything. Yeah. And if they think that I know everything and I fly off and get really upset with them, sober or drunk, whichever, and I don't stop and say, or come back and say, hey, listen, I'm so sorry. Like, I was really upset about something else and like have a conversation and they think that that's just like, A, they think they've done something horrible, whether they have or not. And B, they think that that's how, that's how like they should be treated. Yeah. Yeah. Elise, thank you very much for imparting your knowledge Yeah. on everybody today. How can, how can people find you and uh, get hold of you to work with you? Yeah, so I um, am on Instagram at Elise Knox Life Coach. Um, and my website is elisenox.com. And yeah, that's it. 
go check her out. Um, if anything, parents, I'm talking to all the parents out there right now because a, a lot of people who at least work with, they can't afford to pay her because they're kids, right? So I'm talking directly to the parents out here. Look at this as a growth opportunity. In the UK, we grow up with the mentality that if I go to see the lease, I'm broken. Mm. I look at it, the mentality, and say, Jude, Zia, go see Elise and learn. Go see Elise and talk to things that you don't feel comfortable talking with your mum and dad about. And let's not be under any illusion. We're not their mates, right? Like, we're their parents, and we can have open relationship, and it's really good when they trust us. But there's some shit they want to talk to other people about and learn and figure out themselves so our biases don't get kind of, you know, attached to them. So if you have children, teenage children, and you think they've got a problem or not, just go to Elise's website, go to Instagram, check her out, contact her, just get your kids talking to her. I'm telling you, wow. Imagine the change if we all had someone like you, Elise, when we were younger, because all of our clients have inner child issues. Totally. That's why I'm like, my teenagers, obviously, is when I started drinking and partying and doing crazy things were my most challenging years for sure. I'm like, wow, if I had someone who yeah. wasn't my mom, cause my parents were great, but yeah. I didn't talk to them about anything. Yeah. Someone that's not your peer to talk to about like what you're doing and how you're feeling. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Do you know what? Fuck this alcohol stuff. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop this company and get into the same thing. It sounds really good. At <laughs> uh, least thank you very much. Much love. Oh, Take care. So. Bye. Okay, folks, I hope you enjoyed that beautiful conversation with Elise Knox. What a wonderful person she is and what a wonderful piece of work she's doing, right? Like how many teenagers out there are really getting help in this ama amazingly important area? You know, like even if you're like the coolest, most emotionally intelligent parent that's completely with it, your parents might not want to talk to you about some of the things that are going on for them because... Yeah, sometimes they just want to talk to a stranger. And there are not enough strangers out there who are as highly trained as Elise Knox in this area. So if you want to work with Elise, send me an email at 1kdaysober at gmail.com. I'll put you in touch with her. If you are interested in learning more about how you can stop drinking alcohol or you want to transform your life in other areas, then you can also work with me. Email me 1kdaysober at gmail.com and I'll get in touch with you and put you in uh, a coaching call and we'll see how we get with, go with that. Um, if you do like this podcast, please rate and review it. If you could, I'd really appreciate it and let someone know about it. You could be changing someone's life today. All right, strive on folks.